I know that my slides are a bit heavy, so I'm not going to talk about everything. I've got copies of slides if you want anything. Um, but I just wanted to focus on a few things, and one of them is assumptions that we make, and I wanted to link to the previous presenters. So if I was standing in that emigration queue, I would be the only chapter writer who is in the EU queue, okay? And that gives you a lot of different assumptions. So um, when I walk into the classroom, and let's just imagine you don't know my name, you haven't seen my name, okay? If you were to think about a couple of adjectives describing me, just look at me. Who am I? I'm white. I could pass for a British easily, right? It's only when I open my mouth that people start making different assumptions. And when we talk about assumptions and queuing in different places, um, I also want to link my presentation to certain um, attitude that some uh, migrant academics might possess and that can make their life a bit easier. And this is openness to questioning and openness to different experiences and moving around. So I was listening with envy to you, Eric, thinking, I want to go there, okay? I want to be there in the Caribbean. I'm ready for my next experience. I've moved quite a lot, but I'm ready to go somewhere else. Um, and because I'm quite open to different experiences and different cultures, I'm also open to relationships with people coming from different cultures. So my partner is British, but he comes from the Caribbean, so his background is uh, Caribbean. When we queue to security in Poland, he's treated very suspiciously, being black. Yeah? And my daughter gets really strange comments about being Arab or what, what not, because she's mixed. Okay? So all kinds of assumptions can be made just by looking at us, and then they can change as we walk into the classroom. My problem when I moved here was that um, a lot of people who recruited me assumed that because I was from European Union, I was from, I wouldn't call myself Western, but I think that the, the, that was the slightly ignorant assumption of some people, um, was that actually I would have very easy journey. Yeah? I would know the system here. It would be very similar. But when I listened to you, uh, to you presenting, Henry, I thought, Poland is like Cameroon. It's not like, you know, like England. So actually, um, we make all kinds of assumptions which are very wrong. And uh, I think we need to have spaces like here today to question each other, to uh, discuss things with each other and think about it. So I will move on to the context. Um, so Poland is obviously one of the European Union countries, uh, perhaps not uh, you know, I am home. I'm using this uh, also in the chapter. I am a home academic. How long? I don't know. Maybe for another year, right? Um, so that's another complexity coming politically now to the fore. Um, but Poland is a country of a very complex and complicated history, including the history of education. So I have a very different social historical background and what I call baggage and I come from a very different pedagogic tradition. But when I was recruited to the Center of uh, Excellence in Teaching and Learning at my university, my boss really thought that 
I would understand the system and the transition would be very easy and I would just grasp everything that um, post-1992 university in the UK uh, was doing. That wasn't the case. Okay, so um, universities in Poland are very well established and uh, there is this concept of uh, ivory towers or, you know, kind of ethos of uh, education as the highest value and that has been quite traditionally early on from 14th century the case. Um, but then, uh, at the end of 18th century, Poland was partitioned by, by three different countries, so Russia, Austria and Prussia, now, nowadays it's Germany obviously, uh, slowly chipping away Poland and uh, by the end of 18th century Poland disappeared from the map. For 123 years, no Polish language, no culture, no education, no, um, no uh, availability of education in Poli Polish language. So a lot of education went underground and uh, uh, together with Catholic Church, uh, formal and informal education, which was quite often, um, uh, so flying universities, for example, were developed where people would be meeting in different places. That's why they were called flying, because, you know, they, they couldn't be caught. Um, so, uh, Sessions were arranged in different places and by different people and it was just all about the push to preserve national identity, language and uh, kind of later on during post-Second War, tyranny of Soviet Union, similar story, trying to maintain language, trying to maintain the culture, trying to maintain education. So no wonder then that education, especially higher education, is an extremely important um, vehicle to maintain Polish national identity, language and culture. And there is this very strong ethos of education still um, kind of seen in, uh, in that part of the world. And also the role of what we call intelligentsia, I'll come back to that term, and the idea that we, the lecturers, the higher, uh, uh, higher education uh, teachers or researchers, we are the cream of the society we should be leading, okay? So, obviously, during the annexations, the stratum of um, very educated people uh, who are united by charismatic feelings and certain values was gradually formed. And it basically indicates certain qualities and dispositions. So, they are kind of identified by proper behavior. Um, by good manners, by certain social cultural choices. So academics in that kind of environment are supposed to be the most cultured people, the most read people, the people who go to, you know, um, different art events and so on. This is the idea, but also people who are supposed to be nations and the people's spiritual leaders. Okay? So my university, Polish university experience, I actually moved from Poland to Finland and then to UK. Um, my experience was very, very different to the experience I see my students having now. And sometimes I have conversations with them and they say, you know, this is incredible. How can it be? Okay. So when I entered, entered university, it was a state-funded, highly prestigious institution and its aim was to create national elite, okay? So we do not have much diversity there, right? Here, it's all about fees. If you can afford paying 9,000 pounds to get to the university, that's fine. You're welcome. 
no matter whether the, whether you actually really are able to complete that education. Sometimes I feel okay. So this is a very different concept. You have to be very intellectually able to get into uh, university. At least it has been like that. It's changing in Poland, but it it was traditionally like that. Okay. So access to education is not dependent on material status, but on the ability to achieve. And it's very, very important there. So academia is fiercely competi competitive with very limited spaces and tough entry examinations. We do not do clearing, okay? We have entry exams. And if you are lucky, you get into university. If you work really, really hard, you will pass your first year. If not, out. We call it weeding out, yeah, okay? So when I entered, this is my personal context, when I entered, um, I had to beat 18.5 people to get my place to study psychology uh, at my university. Um, I had to survive the first year, which was very, very tough, and the university um, structure was quite different. So nowadays it started following following Bologna process, it's very similar to, or it's becoming more similar to how it is here. But we had only five years master's courses. We couldn't do bachelor's first, okay? So in my five-year training, I had to get all the general knowledge subjects first. And in psychology, that meant I had to go to anatomy classes and cut frogs, decapitate them, cut, you know, put things on their heart and all kinds of horrible things. It was just horrendous. But because I had to do philosophy, I had to do pedagogy, I had to do anatomy, all kinds of things, I had very broad uh, knowledge. Um, we call it encyclopedic knowledge. And there is an issue with this as well. I recognize now, uh, having been through different systems of education, but we have very broad and deep knowledge, and we have to memorize a lot of facts, and we have a lot of exams which we have to pass, okay? So education is hard. This is the idea, uh, uh, but rewarding. And there are many scholarships for the best people. Okay, so graduates are those people who actually survived the education and who are educated, skilled. Actually, they don't have any debt. The only debt is the uh, moral obligation to the country. So just comparing the, the, the kind of fiscal um, situation for, for our students here in the UK, they end up with a huge debt that they will have to pay for many, many years. I ended up having no debt, and because I was a top student, so I actually accu accumulated quite a lot of scholarships, so I went out and bought property outright. Just by studying, okay? I earned money from studying. When I say this to my British um, students, they really find this concept very bizarre, you know, how is it even possible? Okay, so you get it, you know, the ethos of education is very, very different. Uh, it's all about, you know, knowledge seen as liberty, as forbidden fruit, a tool to protect oneself from, for example, communistic brainwash. Uh, you have to stay intellectual, well-read, and so on. So this is more of a way of life. Um, and similar to Cameroon, actually, uh, we don't get paid much in Poland. So it's all about prestige and uh, being highly respected, being on this pedestal, being the cream of the society. Um, and emphasis is on education as a value in itself, the highest good. 
And I've done some research with um, Central Eastern European students because I kept getting questions from my colleagues, you know, how come that Central Eastern European students are doing so well in our universities? So it turns out that quite a lot of them were achieving the highest marks. Uh, so I did some research into it. And I think one of the biggest factors is this idea that education is so important and it's a value in itself. Uh, so people just want to be educated. And when I did interviews with students, they were saying, you know, I was asking, why are you doing a PhD in Russia and at the same time masters in whatever in our university in two different locations at the same time, two very challenging courses? And the responses were the same. Because I want to be cultured, I want to be educated, I want to have this kind of uh, feeling, okay? Um, so I looked at that and um, I think it's really, really interesting that doing this kind of research and moving between different contexts, you start challenging your own assumptions, you start thinking back. So initially it's a shock, okay, it's very different here. That was how it was in Poland. Um, and I think we go through different phases. I think I went through a phase when I thought, actually, you know, it was perhaps, you know, um, better in a way in Poland. Uh, and I experienced the valuing and I experienced, you know, fighting for my, um, uh, my qualifications to be also recognized. So, for example, my five-year master's in psychology was only recognized as a bachelor's uh, here, but that was enough for me to go onto a PhD program here. So, you know, but after a while you start thinking, actually, it's not good or bad, it's different. And by interrogating and questioning and kind of reflecting on your experiences and comparing and talking to people, you start seeing that actually I'm learning quite a lot. There are good things here, good things here. We can combine them. We can think about how they can come together. Okay, so um, another difference that I wanted to uh, talk about is that in this kind of context of uh, traditional Polish education, because as I said, it's changed quite a lot, uh, we wouldn't have any, we wouldn't have to consider any activities such as pastoral care, career, individual guidance, personal development. It's not the lecturer's responsibility, okay? Um, so we have fairly big intake, but we are weeding out the weak students. Um, and uh, lectures are given by very prominent professors. There is a high level of discipline in the classrooms. Tutorials are done in much smaller groups with younger junior lecturers, and then you have to prepare for each tutorial and seminar because you will be asked, and there will be a test almost every, uh, in every class. So this continuous assessment is taken very seriously, and we have very strict code of behavior in the classroom. Um, there is no customer orientation, and students are expected to be in what we call here contact hours, which would be around 30 to 40 hours. So nobody really works. Uh, being in full-time education is your job if you are in a state-funded education. There is no diversity in the classroom, mainly Polish young students, mainly Polish speaking, although again, this is changing nowadays, okay? So switching to the academia here, it was very, very different. Obviously, I'm in a widening participation institution with a very diverse body of students. Many of them are much older than me and very different backgrounds to me. So that uh, required quite a lot of thinking and changing the way I behave and the way I, um, I work. Um, I think the biggest problem for me 
uh, it's not so much, I think, through the years I eased into education, and I think the biggest benefit for me was that I was actually a researcher based in Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning for four years, and I could actually research and engage with literature and colleagues and understand the system. So I didn't go right into the teaching, which I think uh, saved me, in a way, <laughs> from many, many uh, pitfalls. Um, my problem is that I have to wear so many hats, and they are very competing with each other. So I'm expected to do teaching, research, administration, more and more pastoral care and personal tutoring, facilitation, guiding people. Um, but I'm also a manager. As a senior lecturer, I have to manage courses, I have to manage partnerships. Um, I'm also, as a psychologist, I'm clinically active, so I'm a clinician seeing people, you know. There is not enough time, and I'm just feeling such a burden, I'm feeling like I'm not doing really a good job, okay? So, um, but student satisfaction is paramount, so I need to satisfy uh, my students. So I think my practice, the reality of my own practice is very fragmented, and this is the biggest challenge, this managing and jiggling different um, responsibilities. Um, the fact that we need to keep uh, students happy and we need to uh, think about what they are asking about. We have this system in our university. Students have cards. They are all over the university uh, and they are called you asked with it. So students fill in what they are asking for and it goes right to the vice chancellor. So there is no uh, any mediation with lecturers or anything like that. So quite often we have one student asking for a change and then senior management is telling us, this is what students say, so you have to do it. This can lead to paradoxes and really, really bad decisions that we have to revert following years, because obviously um, this is just one or two people saying something, and then the next year we have students saying exactly the opposite, and so on and so forth. Um, so this can lead to some paradoxes, and also you know, I'm thinking about my social historical baggage as a citizen of post-communistic country, and I've got this strong <coughs> Slavic language, which can be seen as disadvantage. But actually, I think that social historical background also taught me a lot of toughness, perseverance, and that ethos of hard work and education, which is actually helping me. I think I'm running out of time, so I just wanted to emphasize here um, that it's really good to think about, you know, what can you take from your past background, which for me was this perseverance, toughness, really knowing that I can get my head down and get on with it. Um, and having this open co cosmo cosmopolitan uh, stance towards diversity, acknowledging differences, looking actively for differences, and then thinking about how can I make a contribution based on this? So for me, it's my interdisciplinarity and my uh, diverse background and experiences that I've had, uh, which led to working in a way that would incorporate those. So I do a lot of projects which are with bilinguals and for bilinguals, for migrant communities, um, which are interdisciplinary, which are international or internationally recognized. So. Um, I really fought hard and long, and it took me quite a few years to get to the point where I can, where I'm in a, my own niche, where I can actually make a contribution, I think, with my background, with my linguistic skills, 
uh, and solving, pressing social issues, working for the good of the communities that are quite often disadvantaged. So um, I think I'll stop here, right? Yeah.